Hi, this is Larry, and we're starting our second podcast. Uh, I'm your host, and I want to welcome you back for those who were here last week, and I want to welcome all the newcomers if there were any. Uh, Today we're going to discuss the fish curve. What is the fish curve? The fish curve is a set of emotions that we go through as family or loved ones of those that suffer from this disease. It's uh, easy to understand once you've been through it, but for newcomers and those who don't attend meetings and don't understand the disease, it'll help uh, get us set up and explain uh, how we feel and what we're going through. So let's begin. First of all, what is a curve? A curve, for those of you who went to school and can remember, uh, you took a test, and if the teacher graded you on the curve, there were those that did very bad. There were those that fell into the uh, middle, and they were, whether you know, let's say you got a 30, but 30 was what the medium of the class was, so that was a C. And then there were those that were on the uh, right-hand side of the curve, but not down, and that was maybe C plus or B minus, and right around the curve going all the way over to the right, you can go up to A. So let's let's go through what the possibilities of your emotions are on this curve. And let me explain to you, I'm not a therapist. I'm just somebody who, when I found out that my daughter had this disease, I devoted a substantial amount of my time to learning about it. And in my opinion, and I might have mentioned this last week, but the best way to deal with this disease is to gain knowledge. Okay, so part A of the curve one is joy. Now, you might ask, how can you feel joy when you find out your loved one is suffering from this disease? Well, I'm not going to say it's joy like you just hit the lottery. It's not the same joy that, you know, your kid just graduated from college and got a wonderful job and met a a wonderful spouse and, you know, they came home to tell you that they're getting married or that your married child has a child, is expecting a child. No, but it's joy in the concept of the disease of addiction. So what does that mean? Okay, you find out your child is suffering from the disease. And yes, you don't always find out right away. You might realize they're getting high, and you might just attribute that to the fact that all kids do this. It's a rite of passage. They're going to school, they have friends, they go out, they party. And it's a a phase, and they're going to eventually meet somebody, get married, get a job. Hopefully, they'll get a job and then get married. And they're going to straighten out just like we did when we were kids, hopefully. And everything's going to be fine. But you'll find out 
one out of, you know, or maybe two out of, there are several ways you can find out that your child has a problem. In the case of my daughter, we got a call from the police and they said, we can't arrest your daughter because she had gone to a pill mill and the doctor was a licensed physician and she obtained her medication legally. She broke no rules, no laws, but she does have a problem and we just want to make you know, let you know that she is suffering from this disease. And I was very appreciative. I thanked the officer because I now knew, but what would I do? I didn't know what to do. So I called a friend of mine who was a judge on a drug court, and she recommended a place to uh, where we could put her in for treatment if she was willing to go, because if they're an adult, you can't tie them up and bring them there. Hopefully, they will agree to go. And hopefully they're not agreeing to go because they're totally paranoid and they don't know what to expect because they didn't realize that you found out. And now they're scared. So the important thing, though, is that they went into treatment. And in our mind, when they got, went into their first treatment, we thought, well, they're going to come out and they're going to be cured of this insidious disease. But it doesn't work like that. It's not the kind of disease that there's a cure for. They will never, and I don't mean to intimidate you or scare you, but they will never be cured from this disease. There is no cure. They will always be one use away from a relapse. But that's not as scary as it is. It sounds much more, much more, much worse than it really is. Because those that enter into long-term sobriety are in recovery, they work a program, and everything's fine. But when they go into their first treatment, there's a sense of joy. And that's phase one of the fish curve, the joy feeling. Because in our minds, we feel they're going to get out and everything's going to be great. They're going to go back to work. They're going to go back to school. They're going to go back to a normal life and everything's going to be great. They'll meet somebody or them and their significant other will start a life and everything's going to work out and someday hopefully they'll never have to but they'll be going through this with their child and they're going to start in a month because at the time my daughter went in insurance companies gave you a week to detox and a month to go for treatment so in a month they're going to be fine plus a week and this lasts for, depending on how long they stay in recovery, and that might be forever. So don't let me intimidate you. I'm just going through a majority sequence. I'm sure if you have spoken to anybody 
that suffers from the disease, there's approximately a 95 to a 90% relapse for first-timers. That's the bad news. This is, a, I, I don't call it an insidious disease, which is, a, it means it's a terrible, horrible disease uh, for nothing. It, it is a horrible disease. So they go in, they come out, and we're feeling great. And that lasts for a month, two months, three months, four months, whatever the time period is, everything's going great, and we got a grin so big you can wrap it over your ears. And suddenly we're starting to notice that they're coming home late, they're not parking the car so straight in the driveway, and uh, things are, you know, they're going into their room, they're not saying goodnight. Different things that you're noticing is not in line with the way they were acting when they first came out of treatment. And you get a little nervous, and you sit down and you talk to them, and hopefully if they've gone into a relapse, which is part of the disease. I never say it's part of recovery, but it is part of the disease. Uh, if they've gone into a relapse mode, you will find out eventually because the disease is progressive, and that's the downside. And the upside is so is recovery. If they stay in recovery, they learn how to live progressively in their recovery. They become used to the fact that they don't stay out all night. They get used to the fact that they don't drink. They get used to the fact that they can't do anything that can cause euphoria. They get used to this unless you want to uh, consider the way they feel about their recovery a form of euphoria, and it is. Uh, you see people that are totally elated when they celebrate a year, two years, three years, and they get little incentives, you know, from their uh, program. Okay, so your initial treatment, the first part of the curve is joy. Then there's part B. Part B on this curve is confusion because you're realizing that your loved one is entering into relapse. And at this point, if they enter into treatment, it's short term because if you catch it quick enough, they don't always have to go for, you know, and you don't know. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening. But uh, their treatment is easier because they haven't really gone into a full relapse. They might have slipped. They might have. That's what they refer to as a slip. As they they've used once, they've used twice, but they realize that they're in trouble and they go back in on their own. And they or they ask for help or they bring it to your attention or their sponsor's attention and they go in for help. So that's considered a slip. It's when they don't ask for help, and it's when they start using all the time that it's a relapse. Uh, so 
Phase two is confusion. You can't understand why after going through the hell that they went through, they're back to using again. And that's one of the reasons I say don't try to understand this disease because they don't know why they relapsed. It's just the chemicals in the brain at work. It's that euphoric effect that they're chasing. They, you've heard the expression chasing the dragon. They get these urges and these urges I remember my sister when I was explaining what my daughter was going through. She would say, yes, I know what she's going through. I get like that with candy. Well, yes, food is an addiction, can be an addiction also. Uh, my sister will open a box of candy, and if she doesn't control herself, she could eat the whole box of candy. But candy tastes good, and candy, yeah, it is a form of addiction. I'm not going to say no, but she can control herself. She can eat two pieces of candy, put the top on the box, and put it away. When my daughter relapses, or relapsed, I should say, she couldn't use once or twice and control herself. She was, she was back in addiction. Uh, so yes, there's confusion on our part. You were doing so great, why did you have to use? And we think it's a choice. And yes, at that point, when they're clean and they choose to use again, it's a choice. But it's not the same choice that they had when they first started to use. It's not like, hey, I'm going to be cool when friends are having a party. Hey, look, there's a blue. Blue is uh, an insider's term for an oxycodone. The pills are blue. They also come in green. Uh, but they like the blues because the blues either come on stronger or they are stronger. Uh, they have different quality generics. And they find that uh, when they would come into the store, they would say, do you carry the blues? I'd always say, no, why? Because I couldn't do that. I knew there was family somewhere that were counting on their Maintain, they're, they're maintaining their sobriety, and I was destroying a life. So I would tell them I don't carry them. But there were a lot of pharmacists that made money. Uh, and a lot of chains that made money. So don't ever think that it's an independence way of making money. The big chains made money. The manufacturers made money. The doctors made money. And the independents made money. So the confusion lies on our part. But as you learn about the disease, the confusion phase phases out because you realize that by the time you get to the end of the bell curve and you're understanding this disease, you realize that it could happen. Relapse can happen, and they're not doing it to hurt you, and they're not doing it to hurt themselves. They're doing it because their brain takes control and drives them. Ask yourself, somebody 
who the state has taken their children away. A mother who loses control of their family. The state takes their loved ones away, their children away. What's a stronger bond than the love between a mother and her children? And I've seen it at meetings. I've seen parents cry and they're so ecstatically happy. They cry with joy saying, in two weeks, I'm getting my child back. And all of a sudden, they don't show up at a family night meeting. And then like a month, a month and a half later, they come in and they start to cry and they grab the therapist and they hug her and they give me a hug and they say, I don't know what happened. I don't even remember going to buy my, you know, drugs. I just relapsed. Some people will say it's because psychologically they don't think they're worthy of sobriety. This is something that we don't know and we can't figure out how the brain works and what, what you know, a good therapist can get into their head sometimes, but they can't figure out. A good therapist can help for sure. A good therapist is a lifeline many, many times and very important in the recovery process. But what makes somebody suddenly give the therapist a hug, go home, and on the way home stop off and buy a load? And knowing that they could die and knowing that when they get tested, it's going to show up and they're not going to get their kids back. So confusion is definitely the feeling when you see the relapse for the first time, the second time. It never goes away. We always try to figure out what would cause them to relapse. They were doing so well and bing, there they are again, dope sick or maybe dead. The third phase or part C, is weariness and hope. And that's if you can get your loved one to re-enter into treatment. And if they go in on their own, there's a much better chance, yes, but if you can talk them into going in, that's, that's, always wonderful if you could talk them into going in because a lot of times they don't want to admit to themselves that they want to go in. So any way you can get them into treatment is great, but you always have that weariness. Is this going to be the one that works? And you never know which one works, so don't feel bad that you have that feeling. But there's hope on your part too. And then there's depression and despair because they have their second relapse, they have their third relapse, they have their fourth relapse. But remember, this is part of the disease and it happens. But each time they go into treatment, they got a better chance of succeeding. You're gonna be upset and you're gonna feel despair, but you gotta grab a hold of yourself and give them encouragement each time they go in. 
and you got to support them. And how do you support them? You don't support them by giving them money and buying them a new wardrobe and buying them a new car. But you support them by saying, we're here for you anytime you want to talk. Come into the room. I don't care if it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Wake me up. If you're starting to feeling urges, give your sponsor a call. I'll sit with you if you want. I'll make us some coffee. We can drink. I'll make us some tea. We can drink. And you could talk to your sponsor and uh, your support group. Call them. And uh, don't tell them I told you to do it at 3 o'clock in the morning because they'll hate me. But step five is compassion, fatigue. Things are going south for enough times and they're trying to play you and they're trying to get what they can from you and they're stealing from you and they're doing all these horrible things and you're getting up in the middle of the night because you hear people talking and you come in and there's people in your house and they're all high and you never saw some of these people before and what's going on and you come out and uh, some of them might not be that nice to you and you might have to call the police and 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 you get this feeling a sense of doom and you're, you're tired you're tired of putting up with this nonsense and you feel a little guilty but compassion fatigue it's usually associated with a child but it could happen with a husband, it could happen with a wife, it could happen with a loved one. Uh, they tell me, and they would tell me that it's most often happens with it, uh, compassion fatigue is associated with a child, but it's a feeling, and I don't think the feeling is limited to anybody. I think it's limited to somebody. It could be a worker. Look, if your worker comes in uh, two hours late every day and smells from uh, alcohol uh, and, and you give them chances, eventually you're going to get compassion fatigue and you're not going to be, you know, he has kids and a family, but you're going to have to let him go because you have to run a business. That's a form of a compassion fatigue. So, eventually compassion fatigue sets in, and at that point it's very easy to set boundaries. And boundary setting is a very important part of the disease. And it's very hard at phase one, and it's very easy once compassion fatigue sets in. And at that's the point where there could be very easily it could be a break in relationship. And hopefully it doesn't last long. Phase six is hope. You're attending either family night meetings or programs such as Al-Anon, Nar-Anon, whatever Anon you find that works for you and you are gaining a knowledge of this disease and you're beginning to realize that this is what it's about. 
This is what it's going to be until your loved one feels that click. And they all describe it as a click. Something clicked that I knew I was done, I wasn't going to use again, and that's when they enter into long-term sobriety. They can't explain it. I can't explain it. It's just a feeling they get in one of their treatments, and they're done. And it doesn't even have to be in a treatment. It could just be a click and they start going to meetings. Maybe they don't have insurance. Maybe they can't get into a state program, but they feel that click. And at that point, you don't fully trust them, but there's hope. And you're feeling this hope and this hope gets stronger. And they're working a program and they might be a little inconsiderate because I've seen this plenty of times. They get a little defensive if you go, where were you? How come you're home so late? But you've earned that right because you've been through hell in a handbag. Just like they've been through hell, we've been through hell. And it doesn't take long. I know very few people that suffer from the disease of addiction that doesn't have a cell phone. So if they go to a meeting and they hook up with a sponsor and the sponsor takes them out for coffee or they have a support group and the support group is going out for coffee after the meeting and they hadn't been going up until this time, they get invited and they go, yeah, they're adults and yeah, they don't have to check in with mommy and daddy. But you know what? We're scared, and we don't know if they're going to, for coffee or if they're going, if they got arrested or if they got in an accident and they're in the hospital or if they relapsed. So you get on your cell phone, you call up, and you go, Mom, Dad, I'm with my sponsor. I'm with my support group. After the meeting, we're going for coffee, and I'll be home a little later, and I love you, and I'll see you later. Don't worry. And that's, that's part of your gaining knowledge of the disease. Are you fully, are you fully feeling safe that they're going to a coffee? No. Like I say, you've been through hell. And you're not fully, you know, feeling fully safe. But that's why I say phase six is hope. You're hoping that everything is going well. But you have a knowledge of the disease. You realize that whatever they do, it's not to hurt you. It's not because they don't love you. It's hopefully the right thing that they're doing. And they wish, and you're wishing them well. And you're just waiting to see what happens. And if they felt that click and they're ready to enter into long-term sobriety, nothing you can do or say that might aggravate them is going to cause a relapse. And nothing you can do or say is going to cause them to enter into sobriety. That's something they do on their own. And that's the fish curve, and I call it the fish curve because people probably know all these things, but they never put it down, and I put it down, and maybe they did put it down, but I've never seen it, so I'm taking title to it. 
And I want to thank you all for coming, and I want to mention something that I didn't mention last week. I wrote a book. I wrote a book for everybody that suffers from the disease. <coughs> Excuse me. But specifically, I wrote it to help people in the families that can't get to meetings, that can't uh, get help for themselves. The book is there to kind of explain, not explain because you can't explain the disease, but try to, to try to teach those that don't know about the disease a little bit about it, to try to help them deal with the disease. Uh, the name of the book is Addiction in the Family. Now what? Shock. That's also the name of the podcast. It's written by me and it's available through Amazon. And uh, even if you're able to listen to the podcast every week, this is a good source to go to because we speak through the through the lectures, you know, through the podcast, we mention a lot of facts, a lot of things, and it's a good reference source. And it also will answer a lot of questions. I want to let you know that I have an email address where if you have any questions, you can send it to. Uh, the email address is addiction in the family now what at gmail.com uh, you can email your questions to me and I'll try to discuss it at the next meeting or the meeting after that uh, definitely I will try to get to them within two weeks um, I want to give you the phone number for SAMHSA. That's the uh, Drug Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Uh, that's 1-800-662-4357. For those of you who might know somebody that has a loved one or is suffering from the disease that's hearing impaired, the number is 1-800-487-4889. Or you could text samhsa.gov. I want to thank you again for listening, and I want to invite you back next week. We are going to address problems with addiction and problems with the family understanding, not understanding, I always use that word, but that's not it, Pro uh, problems with the families dealing with the disease and problems with the people who suffer from the disease that are trying to get help and they just want to unload, so call. Send your questions and send your problems and things you want discussed uh, at the email. Again, that's addiction in the family. Now what? At gmail.com. Uh, I want to thank you again. Have a wonderful week, and hopefully, you'll join me again next week. Thank you. This is Larry, uh, and you all have a safe and wonderful week. Thank you. Bye.